0: This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org.
1: Hello and welcome back to How We Got Here. I'm Rachel DePampa, an investigative reporter for the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. We've got a jam packed episode two for you this week. So let's just get right into it. We are turning back the clock on the week of November 25th to December 1st. Our first story is based right here in Richmond where an interesting invention got its start. And once it began rolling through these streets, it spread around the world. We're talking, of course, about the electric streetcar.
2: It is an amazing first that we don't really take much credit for the fortunate issues that we no longer have them. We have now been without the streetcar system for about a decade longer than they rolled here. They were here for 61 years from 1888 to 1949.
1: And it was November 25th, 1949, that Richmond's electric streetcar system made its final run, giving way to the motorized bus. But the birth and fiery death of these trolleys makes for quite a story I think you're really going to enjoy
2: as in all things, within the seed of conception was the kernel of its destruction. Because the the forces that brought the streetcars into power killed them off. The transit history of Richmond was never a smooth and easy ride.
1: (laughs) Enter Harry Kolatz Jr.
2: I don't want dad getting blame or credit for anything. I am the senior writer at Richmond Magazine, which makes me sound older than I am and wiser than I wish I was, or something like that. The senior writer makes me sound older than I wish I was and wiser than I am.
1: While researching this topic, we quickly came to understand that Kolatz was the man to talk to about the transit system. He knows everything about it. He's our streetcar scholar.
2: They were the first of their kind. It was a citywide electric-powered transit system. And within a few years, I think more than 200 cities got the uh, the system Frank Julian Sprague created here.
1: Frank Sprague was a student of Thomas Edison. Yes, that Thomas Edison. His streetcar idea was actually born in London. He saw the sparks shooting from the steam trains and thought, there has to be a better way.
2: He goes back to New York and tries to get investors together and tinkers in his shop and successfully uh, catches a car on fire in Manhattan. And it was right about this time that Richmond came calling.
1: And Sprague decided to answer that call for a variety of reasons.
2: First of all, they were giving him the chance to do this. And secondly, it was kind of like opening off-Broadway. You know, if, if, if it failed utterly, he wouldn't fall on his face in front of this, the, the, the full light of the New York City press. You know, it was sufficiently out of the way that he, it wouldn't be a complete and total absolute disaster to his career.
1: A Richmond City Councilman and Confederate veteran named J. Thompson Brown knew that if Richmond was going to expand over its historic ravines and ridges, it needed something new.
2: So what Brown was envisioning was something that didn't exist. There were no electrical systems in the world at this point that practically operated for more than maybe a block or two.
1: And if you thought Brown brought Sprague to Richmond because he was a man with a plan, think again.
2: Frank Sprague admitted later that he came down here with nothing but like a vague plan and the gumption that he could do it and he had to have a timeline there was a deadline and if he he failed to produce on time he'd have to pay the city $75,000 so he was under the gun
1: but it appears that Sprague worked well under pressure even though he did miss his first deadline
2: he did end up having to pay the city $75,000 because he didn't turn it in on time
1: and it's what he came up with that would change transit around the world.
2: Well, the innovation that Sprague created here was the traction motor. Now these kinds of things had been around, but he put it all together and essentially, and this is how the trolley gets its name, there is a troller, it's called, and it connects to the wire, the overhead wire, and that takes the power down to the, to the batteries. Then the braking action of the streetcar Uh, recycles that energy and sends it back up through the pole. It was green when it was just a color. In
1: 1888, the electric streetcar system began running, with a bit of luck mixed in to help it get off the ground.
2: Sprague and his team celebrated the running of 30 cars along the lines established in February. And that night, by accident, 16 cars assembled in the center of town along its theater row Uh, when an event let out requiring a way to move people and that's how it sort of started.
1: But as with many new inventions, it had some, let's say, growing pains.
2: They were loud. They rattled. You could always hear them coming. Well, sometimes people could, other times they just walked in front of them. There were plenty of streetcar casualties. You think people now are bad, distracted by their phones and jaywalking across the streets. You read in the paper, you know, practically every week, there's someone getting hit by a streetcar or they're like, you're trying to hang on to the back and they, they get dragged and a well-known railman uh, at one point said that Richmond was the absolute worst for etiquette between uh, pedestrians and streetcars. And so really, uh, the more things change, <laughs> the more they stay the same.
1: The original fare to ride on one of these trolleys, a nickel. Their top speed, a blistering 10 to 15 miles per hour. And with most inventions, there's an upside and a downside. And the history of the streetcar very much mirrors what was going on in society at the time.
2: The upside was it got people further lands outside of the center city, allowed for the expression and, and expansion of the city downside was it was mostly the white population that was being served. African-Americans and and uh, non-whites uh, really almost had to petition to get uh, car stops in their neighborhoods. They weren't as frequent. There was also Jim Crow regulation. They were racially divided streetcars.
1: The city also never controlled the streetcars.
2: That was a free enterprise system from the go, from jump.
1: And when the city created a master plan for its future, it began to phase out the streetcars to embrace highways and buses the transit system is purchased by the virginia transit company in 1944 and just three years later motorized buses began rumbling into town as for the streetcars
2: by 1949 many of them even though they were lovingly patched together and maintained by the engineers and mechanics they were starting to look old and in the way. Plus, you had the returning soldiers, now civilians, with their big, fendered cars, and they wanted plenty of room in the road. You already had buses, you had pedestrians, the were, streets were crowded.
1: And it was on November 25th, 1949, that people dressed up in their Sunday best to take the final ride on the trolleys.
2: This was a 61-year-old city, tradition that was being ditched
1: but it's what happened to the physical remains of this tradition those trolleys that is
2: so hard to believe my personal opinion uh, what happened in 1949 when the when the, the streetcars were lined up in this lugubrious parade wind up and roll down there and set to the torch in this Wagnerian pyre and burn for scrap
1: that's right they were all gathered together and set on fire. There's one firsthand account of this brazen bonfire you just have to hear. And thankfully, my producer Colton got Harry to read it for you. What you're about to hear is from Lee F. Davis. He was with the Virginia Transit Company, which oversaw the destruction of the cars.
2: They drenched old number 408 in gasoline. They chopped holes in her still, sturdy hull. They added oil and shoveled on hot wood coals. They, they stood back to watch her burn, to watch her funeral pyre. There was something almost eerie, however, about old number 408 and the dignity that the flames couldn't besmirch. She refused for 30 solid minutes to burn. When she did burn, she never lost her specter of gallantry. Old number 408 hove herself suddenly erect, groaning at her seams and flinging fire into space they had placed her in a less dignified position on her side so that they could give the flames a swifter headway but old number 408 died the way she had lived right side up and spitting sparks the old car finally inexorably was consumed by flames and the death knell was sounded for all richmond (laughs) streetcars
1: I told you, he was the only person in the world who could do that justice.
2: There is a certain nostalgia about them because we don't have them anymore. People like me (laughs) contemplate what we'd look like if we had a a contemporary arrangement, a modern transit system of of today. The only place you can go see now an actual Richmond streetcar, because the majority of them were burned or scrapped, is the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, where it's on exhibit, like uh, like in a natural history museum, like a big dinosaur, you know, the dinosaur bones.
1: These dinosaurs of the age of transit, now extinct in Richmond, but thriving in Europe. The asteroid that destroyed them here, a funeral pyre, welcoming the trolleys into the land of the obsolete. I challenge you to a duel. Think Aaron Burr versus Alexander Hamilton. A romanticized ceremony where the victor is the one who survives. If I was a public officer or politician, dueling would be illegal in Virginia, and it has been since 1810. In that year, the Virginia General Assembly enacted an anti-dueling law, requiring all public officers to take an oath. They would not participate in duels. The punishment under this statute for killing someone in a duel was death, meaning if you survive the duel, then you die anyway. But by the noose, not a bullet. So why duel again? Apparently dueling was no longer a gentlemanly way to solve an agreement. Who would have thought? But on November 28, 1818, a state delegate named John M. McCarty wrote to the Speaker of the House to resign, saying he could not take the oath against dueling because he had challenged his cousin, Armistead Thomas Mason, to one of those deadly dances. Mason was a descendant of George Mason, author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights that we told you about back in Season 1. Their quarrel began a few years earlier. It had to do with politics and the publishing of a booklet of letters between the two. That's our best guess as to what the fight was really about because the research goes on and on and on. Anyway, according to local lore, Armistead Thomas Mason was returning to Richmond after reading that booklet and found himself in a stagecoach with none other than General Andrew Jackson. Yeah, the future president of the United States. Jackson told him to go forward with the duel. And there's really good reason why Jackson would say that. The seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, fought in more than a dozen duels. One of them leaving him with a bullet in the lung that remained there until the day he died, 19 years later. Apparently, he dueled for many reasons For example, someone making him look foolish in court or being accused of adultery. And the reason he had that lead bullet in his lung? Because of an argument over a horse race. He obviously won that duel. He got shot in the chest, but he killed his opponent. But nonetheless, Mason took Jackson's advice, resigned his military commission, and the duel against McCarty was on. The site was a traditional dueling ground near a stream aptly named Blood Run near Bladensburg, Maryland. Remember, they couldn't do this in Virginia because the survivor would be hanged. They agreed to use muskets loaded with a single ball standing 10 feet from each other. Okay, anyone else going a little western here? At 8 a.m. on February 6, 1819, just over two months since McCarty resigned from the House of Delegates in Virginia, his bullet pierced Mason in the chest. It was a fatal wound. Mason's bullet hit McCarty's musket, ricocheting into his left forearm. A minor wound compared to his counterpart. The year was 1810. Dueling became illegal in Virginia. But less than a decade later, a politician left his life's work to settle things the old-fashioned way, standing 10 feet apart with loaded guns, shooting to kill. Now, let's go into the waning days of the Revolutionary War. British General Charles Cornwallis was in Yorktown. General George Washington and French allies were on the way. When people are asked about the end of the Revolutionary War, they usually go straight to Yorktown, which is about an hour drive east of Richmond. But it was more than a month later, on November 25th, 1781, when the British Prime Minister at the time finally got the news he was dreading.
3: Upon receiving news of Cornwallis' surrender, Lord North exclaims, Oh God, it is all over.
1: Imagine being the Prime Minister of the mighty British and getting the news that one of your colonies defeated you in the arena of war more than a month ago.
3: News reached Great Britain that the King's Prime Minister, Lord North, took it like a ball to the breast, meaning as if he'd been shot. In
1: 1781, news is as fast as the wind behind your sails. It may have been over for the British, but our story is just getting started with the man you just heard from, Ed Ayers,
3: I am a native Virginian. I grew up in Buckingham County. Did graduate work in history at the University of Virginia, where I got a master's degree and did everything required for the PhD except the final step.
1: He just didn't do his dissertation.
3: So instead of having a career as a college professor, I've been more or less a museum historian for most of my career.
1: He's worked all around the Commonwealth, Colonial Williamsburg in the early 70s, then the College of William & Mary, and now he's been with the Yorktown Museum since 1988. So who better to ask about one of the most important battles to turn the tides of British colonialism?
3: What I try to tell people is, Why is Yorktown important? Well, of course, the quick, dirty answer is it's the last significant military activity of the American Revolution and the one that pretty much cemented our victory. But that's oversimplified in many ways.
1: He says apart from Yorktown in October of 1781, the other turning point in the war came earlier in September and October of 1777.
3: The victory at Saratoga in New York, which was the first time that an entire British army had to surrender to an American force, which was shocking to the British, but it didn't mean they were ready to declare defeat yet.
1: They were about four years away from doing that
3: was the first of a series of lessons that the british never really learned and that is that they always expected more support from the colonists than they got they really thought that there were just a few bad people who were the rebels and once the british military force was on the site that the great majority of the people would support them, and they didn't.
1: But the British surrender in upstate New York had implications far beyond the Redcoats laying down their weapons.
3: One of those implications was that France decided to enter the war on the part of the Americans, and that is probably the single factor that ended up Guaranteeing American victory. Without French help, I don't think we would have won the revolution.
1: With France joining the fray, it meant Great Britain had to focus its attention on much more than just the American colony.
3: It had to worry about its colonies in the Caribbean, it had to worry about its foothold in India, it had to worry about being possibly invaded, Britain itself, by France. So all of a sudden it had to spread its military resources all over the Western Atlantic and and even the world.
1: And it was more than just the spread of British forces. The French sent men, supplies, but perhaps more importantly, their fleet.
3: The big disadvantage the Americans always faced with lack of sea power. We just could not contest the British Navy.
1: It's now 1781, and General George Washington is outside of New York with his troops, as well as French regiments under General Rochambeau. And he wasn't there to play rock, paper, scissors. Rock, Paper, Scissors is named after Rochambeau.
3: Washington wanted to use all of this, these soldiers to attack the British in New York. But the British had been in New York for a long time. They'd been dug in, they had good defensive positions, and I think Rochambeau knew that was not a smart move.
1: But the generals got word of a French fleet that was planning to sail north. From the Caribbean, that summer. But for Washington, there was a real problem.
3: It was only going to come up as far as the Middle Atlantic. It was not going to go as far as New York.
1: Meaning that fleet would have to be used somewhere in the Mid-Atlantic. And I think you know where it's headed.
3: Rochambeau pointed out that there was a British force in Virginia at this point under Cornwallis that had been rampaging pretty much at will through the state. Lafayette had a small force to try to resist him, but he was outnumbered.
1: Ayers is talking about the Marquis de Lafayette. We'll hear much more about him later on in this episode.
3: Rochambeau pointed out that with the French fleet in the Chesapeake Bay, if Washington took part of his army with Rochambeau's troops and march south to Virginia, they could possibly trap Cornwallis, who had kind of set up a base at Yorktown.
1: And that's basically what happened. The British did send a fleet of their own south from New York in an engagement called the Battle of the Capes. It was a narrow victory for the French, but offered a huge advantage for the American cause.
3: Consequently, the British Admiral simply took his fleet back to New York, and so the French were in total control of the Chesapeake Bay. Cornwallis could not escape.
1: And the armies of Washington and Rochambeau were beginning to arrive outside of Yorktown, a force of some 17,000 troops.
3: By early October, Cornwallis was surrounded. He was outnumbered at least two to one. So after two or three weeks of intense bombardment, Cornwallis surrendered. And no one blamed him. British soldiers were highly trained professionals that the country had invested a great deal of of money, treasure in, and you didn't just waste your soldiers' lives unnecessarily.
1: Saratoga in 1777, and now, Yorktown in 1781. And that surrender at Yorktown was a spectacle.
3: It's clear from the descriptions that the British soldiers themselves were humiliated and horrified and angry. These kind of strange formalities of wartime in the 18th century, if your opponent had put up a brave fight, you were allowed to march out with honors when you surrendered, which meant with your flags flying and playing your bands and drums.
1: But that's not what happened, because as they say, karma will always come back to bite you.
3: When the Americans had surrendered at Charleston, South Carolina earlier on in 1780, the British had denied them the honor of marching out with honors. And Washington had not forgotten that and he would not let Cornwallis surrender with honors. So what that meant is the British had to march out between two lines of soldiers, French on one side, Americans on the other, with their flags cased, not flying, their drums muffled.
1: At the end of this line, an empty field where the soldiers had to surrender their guns. Research shows many of the Redcoats were drunk, heaving their guns to the ground to try to break them. But what about that British general?
3: Cornwallis himself pleaded illness and did not come out of his tent to surrender personally. His second-in-command stood in for him and first approached the French general, Rochambeau, since it would have been humiliating to surrender to uh, a rebel. Rochambeau, however, refused to accept the surrender and indicated Washington. So he then approached Washington, but Washington refused to accept it and indicated he should go to his second-in-command, General Lincoln, who was the general who had surrendered at Charleston a year earlier.
1: Imagine the scene. It sounds like it's straight out of a movie. General Washington making sure karma received the retribution she deserved.
3: Exactly. He was not going to let them get away without, you know, admitting that they had wronged General Lincoln. It must have been a thrilling sight for the Americans to see these British marching between these two lines of soldiers and knowing that they were destined for a prison camp in Winchester in western Maryland, which they were very quickly marched off to.
1: And it was more than a month later, on November 25, 1781, when news finally reached Great Britain. Lord North said, oh God, it's all over. Parliament decided to end the war, and Lord North resigned the following March. America was a colony no more. The mighty British army and fleet defeated by a country of rebels, fighting for the ideals of liberty, freedom, and independence. On last week's episode, we told you all about the centuries-old tradition in Virginia of the Native American tribes offering the governor wild game. But because Thanksgiving moves every year, and it's late this year. In this episode, we'll talk about how Thanksgiving came to be. It's all thanks to the nation's first president, George Washington. In his first presidential proclamation on October 3, 1789, Washington designated November 26, 1789, as a day of national thanksgiving and prayer. An article on Mount Vernon's website says that Washington marked that day by attending church services at St. Paul's Chapel in New York City and by donating beer and food to imprisoned debtors in the Big Apple. Or maybe for that day, we should call it the Big Cranberry. I digress, and you all know how I feel about cranberry sauce. Anyway. Thanksgiving was practiced by early British colonists more than a century earlier here in Virginia. In a letter from 1619, Captain John Woodleaf was given orders that included an annual religious observance of Thanksgiving at the newly established Berkeley Plantation in what is now Charles City County, Virginia. You'll hear from a direct descendant of Captain Woodleaf in next week's episode. The tradition of feasting on Thanksgiving is generally credited to pilgrims in Massachusetts. If you're not from Virginia or Massachusetts, just know there's a kind of rivalry between the states when it comes to where the first Thanksgiving was celebrated. I'm obviously partial to my Commonwealth story. Remember, season one, they're both commonwealths. The next president to issue a Thanksgiving proclamation after Washington was Abe Lincoln in 1863. He also chose November 26th. Since Lincoln, every president has issued an annual Thanksgiving proclamation, each citing a different date. Most choose the fourth or last Thursday of November, but Franklin D. Roosevelt chose the third Thursday of the month in 1939 through 41. He cited economic reasons, but FDR would sign a law in 1941, setting Thanksgiving as the fourth Thursday in November from 1942 onward. He also made it a federal holiday. So whether you put your turkey in the oven, deep fry it, baste it, stuff it, whatever, just know that it all started with President George Washington's first presidential proclamation in 1789. And sorry to everyone in Massachusetts, but the first Thanksgiving was here in Virginia. Let's take a trip back to the days of the Revolutionary War raging along the eastern seaboard right here in Virginia. America was fighting for independence, always looking for an advantage against the redcoats from across the Atlantic. I just love saying that, the redcoats. One of the ways they did that was the centuries-old tactic of espionage, spying on your enemy to gain the upper hand. And there was a spy for the American rebels known simply as James.
0: We know that James, by his own account, was born in 1748 or around the year 1748. As far as we know, he was born enslaved and owned by the Armistead family in New Kent County.
1: That's Kate Gruber. She's an Ohio transplant now working as the special exhibitions curator at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. She's done extensive research on James and how he helped George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette defeat the British at Yorktown, eventually leading to American independence. You just learned all about that a few minutes ago, but this is the story of a person behind the scenes and behind enemy lines that you need to know about.
0: James's espionage, the intelligence he's able to gather and the role that he played, it's why we're here today. It's why it's the American Revolution Museum at Yorktown and not the American Revolution Museum at New York or, or another place. So he's a very important part of our story at Yorktown and an important part of the revolution in general.
1: But as Kate mentioned, James was a slave. And on November 30th, 1786, he petitioned the General Assembly to gain his freedom. But before we tell you how that story ends, and whether or not he actually was granted his freedom, we need to explore how he got involved in the Revolutionary War in the first place.
0: William Armistead Jr., who owns James, is selected to act as an assistant of the guy who's running what's called the Williamsburg Public Store.
1: The store helped the state deal with the fact they had never had a standing army before, meaning they needed a home base to deal with supplies that are coming in or going out to the battlefield. And James had the skills that made him a valuable asset to the public store.
0: Well, if he could read and write, he could help keep accounts, he could see where things were coming and going and be just a really viable piece of that operation. That might be one of the reasons why he caught the eye of the Marquis de Lafayette as well. Here's someone who's literate, who knows a lot about, you know, the rank and file, supply chains, things like that. Um, he's at least kind of been involved in that world for a while.
1: And the Marquis de Lafayette needed help in a sort of cat-and-mouse game he was involved in with General Charles Cornwallis. That guy, the antagonist in a lot of the American Revolution stories we've shared with you these past two seasons.
0: And they're kind of chasing each other up and down from Fredericksburg to you know Hampton Roads. And you know that this is all gonna play out where everybody's gonna meet eventually in Yorktown. Lafayette is trying to figure out how many forces Cornwallis really has.
1: All while Lafayette's spies are hard at work in Cornwallis' camp.
0: Lafayette writes a letter to to Washington, and it says, quote, A correspondent of mine, servant to Lord Cornwallis, he says that his master, Tarleton, and Simcoe, are still in town but expected to move. So commenting on the location of the bulk of the British forces. And he says that his lordships Cornwallis is so shy of his papers that my friend says he cannot get at them. So what we learn in this letter from the Marquis de Lafayette to George Washington is that Lafayette has somebody who is acting as a, quote, servant to Lord Cornwallis, and he's reading his papers, he's reading his correspondence, he's looking at what's on his desk, and then he's reporting all of that back to Lafayette.
1: A goldmine of information. Troop movements, morale, health, Anything James could get a look at, he reported back to Lafayette, risking his life each and every time.
0: The Marquis de Lafayette writes back to to Washington again, and he says that this correspondent, again, Servant Lord Cornwallis, has learned that the greatest part of the enemy is now embarked. What garrison they have I do not know, but should a French fleet now come to Hampton Road, the British Army I think would be ours. So that's the information, again, that solidifies that Washington is going to be successful, or it looks like Washington could be successful at Yorktown. And all of that intelligence, we think, was actually delivered by James to the Marquis, who then translated that to Washington.
1: Think about this. Imagine being a slave. And then you become a spy for a fledgling country going up against the most powerful army in the world.
0: But that has been the mythology of James and how James was able to operate in this world, I do think that James would have had to have some means of kind of ingratiating himself with Cornwallis. We know that there were thousands of enslaved African-Americans who, who did join the British Army or flee to the British Army at this time, particularly when the British Army was in, in our region here. It would not be implausible to assert that as James backstory. He's not just going to walk in and be like, hey, guys, what's up? I mean, he's going to have some kind of cover story, right? I mean, a reason for him to be there. And he could have certainly said, you know, I've run away. I'm coming to you seeking my freedom. So many other enslaved African-Americans did.
1: You'd think after acting as a spy, James would be granted his freedom. But that was not the case. The Battle of Yorktown was in 1781, and James was returned to slavery. In 1783, the General Assembly passed a law to free slaves who had served in the military during the revolution that helped make America free.
0: This applies to, quote, anyone who contributed towards the establishment of American liberty and independence. By enlisting in any regiment or corps raised within the state, or who had served as a substitute for a free person. But James does not apply. He didn't do either of those things.
3: At
1: this point, they didn't have proof that he helped the cause either.
0: Because if James was acting as a spy, what good spy leaves a paper trail? He had to prove meritorious service. That, okay, I didn't hold a gun, um, but I did something so beneficial to the establishment of, of the new nation that I... I deserve my freedom.
1: So he gave it a try and petitioned the General Assembly in 1784, asking for his freedom.
0: But for whatever reason, they do not grant him his freedom. They just don't do anything to move James's petition forward.
1: But that same year, James receives a note from the Marquis de Lafayette detailing James's service to the American cause. Finally, A bit of proof to bolster his petition for freedom.
0: Because Lafayette comes back and he says, you know, wow, he he realizes somehow that James is still enslaved. And he just thinks that that's so, you know, incongruous with this idea of liberty and freedom that the entire country just fought for. And, And here's James, who was so pivotal to the victory at Yorktown, and he's still enslaved. And so he tries again and he submits another petition, uh, this time in 1786.
1: This time, success. But James wasn't immediately freed. New Kid County sent an auditor to assess his value so his owner, William Armistead Jr., could be compensated for his loss of property. One report says Armistead was given $250 as payment for James.
0: As soon as payment is made to his owner, James was a free man. And then that's when we see him listed as the head of his own household in New Kent County.
1: But he was no longer just James. He took the last name of the man who helped him gain his freedom. There was now a James Lafayette in New Kent County. He held land, received a Revolutionary War pension, even owned slaves. But recently uncovered documents show those slaves might have actually been his family.
0: He was married. He had a wife named Sylvia. His wife was enslaved. It's possible that he was able to somehow purchase her so that she shows up in his property tax.
1: And there's this law in Virginia at the time that the children are connected to the mother, meaning if she's a slave, so are they.
0: If you are a formerly enslaved African-American who was freed, I think after 1806, you have to leave the state within one year of your manumission. That's why I wonder if the slaves that you see are his family. If he was able to purchase his wife and his you know, kids and then give them freedom, they would have to leave in a year. How are you going to keep your family group together? There's just so much which makes it so restrictive on your life. Even if you did have your freedom, you're still not free
1: there's still one more part of James Lafayette's story we just have to share with you. Here's what Kate said when we asked her about it.
0: Love this part of the story. (laughs) It is so much fun. If you just want to go down a rabbit hole sometime, it's the coolest thing in the world to look into.
1: And you know we're all about falling into historical rabbit holes on how we got here. So here we go. Buckle up.
0: It's 1824. The Marquis de Lafayette responds to an invitation from President James Monroe to basically come back and relive this patriotic spirit of 76. It's on the eve of the nation's 50th anniversary. Lafayette's now the last surviving general of the American Revolution.
1: So the Marquis de Lafayette goes on an incredible tour of the eastern seaboard.
0: And it has this amazing rock star tour and everyone just eats it up. The material culture that comes out of all of this is just incredible. I know this is a rabbit hole, but it's so cool. Women are wearing, um, you know, white kid gloves with Lafayette's face on the gloves. And there's this great anecdote that Lafayette's attending a ball being held in his honor. And he meets a woman at the ball, and she puts her hand out for, you know, the good French gentleman to, to kiss the top of her hand. And he looks down, and he sees his own face on the top of this woman's hand. And he says, if you, you know, if you pardon me, madam, I'd rather not you know, kiss my own face, you know, (laughs) on your hand.
1: When Kate says the Marquis de Lafayette was popular, she's not kidding.
0: When Lafayette arrives in New York in 1824, the records tell us that 80,000 people turn out to see him arrive. And when I give a lecture about this, I put that side by side. I put Lafayette's arrival in New York in 1824, side by side with the Beatles arriving in New York in 1964. And if you look at the population analysis of New York in both of those years, a higher percentage of people turn out for Lafayette than they do the Beatles. <laughs> that always gets people chuckling, but that's just to show you how how much of like this cult hero status Lafayette had.
1: That same year, the former spy, James Lafayette, found out his old friend was coming to town. Historians disagree on where this meeting took place, whether in Richmond or Yorktown itself, but it doesn't change how this story ends.
0: The Richmond Inquirer reports that during one of these parades held in Lafayette's honor, James was recognized by Lafayette in the crowd. And the story goes that Lafayette calls out to James and and calls him actually by name, and then they just have this huge embrace in front of everyone, and this is a big spectacle. And that, I think, is the moment that James is really ushered into this new status, and that's a folk hero.
1: James Lafayette, slave turned spy turned folk hero. A man who was once considered property, now considered vital to the end of the Revolutionary War and the beginnings of how we got here. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you to our digital director, Kate Albright for always procrastinating. I mean, for those excellent audio mixes to executive producer Colton Weekly, He's the guy whistling in that duel to the death. Also, thanks to our guests this episode, streetcar guru Harry Kolatz Jr. with Richmond Magazine, Ed Ayers with the Yorktown Museum, and Kate Gruber with the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. Next week on episode three. I'm just waiting for Steven Spielberg to give me a call and offer to produce a movie for me. I think I'd say yes. Before Hollywood comes calling, we have the newly uncovered tale of a 16-year-old heroine from Hopewell who rode through the night to expose a British plot to crush the American Rebellion.
2: Oh, my. It's without a doubt one of the most important Supreme Court decisions in the 20th century.
1: Also, Virginia's dug-in defiance over a landmark court decision to integrate schools
3: due to unconquerable New England bias on the part of the White House staff, and the error would be corrected in future proclamations.
1: And why the Kennedy administration apologized for getting the first celebration of a major holiday all wrong. It was just a tremendous amount of explosions, then the smoke, a little later on the fire on top of the water. And in their own words, The heroes of Pearl Harbor recount that horrific day that brought the United States into the hell of World War II. That's next week on episode three. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at nbc 12com We'll be back in your life
0: next Monday.